This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Iron Rations As we remind our international listeners every year at this time, we here at the Word of the Week are American. And as such, we proudly and happily celebrate our American traditions and holidays, especially those that have to do with eating, drinking, and making merry. Well, mainly those that have to do with eating and drinking. We admit to not being the merriest of people most of the time. That's a consequence of being a pair of old grumps. The sort of old grumps who think everything, from holidays to games, were just better back in the day. Anyway, we're in the process of celebrating Thanksgiving over here in America. A holiday in which we express our gratitude for the wonderful things we have in our lives by over-consuming roasted and buttered stuffs and falling asleep while pretending to be interested in football. American football. The kind you play with your hands. And as such, our minds have turned once again to food. And because over the last few years, some of us grumps have moved further and further from our families, our minds are also on all the traveling we're going to do. And, as we mentioned, we're old grumps, so... Our minds are also on how much better traveling used to be. Mix those things in a brain addled by too much tryptophan and left to daydream because it's lost interest in trying to figure out what sacking the safety on the punt means. Or whatever. And you get iron rations. See how that works? Oh, while we're on the subject, we want to take just a moment to discuss a half-truth that gets bandied about every year at this time. It has to do with that tryptophan thing. See, in America, the post-feast nap is a very popular way of celebrating the pre-nap feast of Thanksgiving. And every year, a bunch of news outlets and morning talk shows desperate to fill a few minutes of time share the fun fact that the reason for your sleepiness on Thanksgiving is that the traditional main dish, roast turkey, is high in something called tryptophan. While that's technically true, it's only half true because the turkey wouldn't affect you if you'd skipped the mashed potato and the stuffing. Tryptophan, or L-tryptophan, is a particular kind of nutrient called an amino acid. Now, amino acids are very important because one of the three major types of organic molecules that keep your body running, proteins, are basically just long chains of different combinations of amino acids. And proteins pretty much make everything happen in your body. They're little chemical machines that help your body to do everything. They break down your food, they assemble vital chemical compounds, they build new body tissue, they transport stuff around your body, they help your body identify foreign invaders and destroy them and, well, everything else. Literally, proteins are life. Now there's about 20 different amino acids, and we're going to give our producer a break for the holiday by not listing them and thereby making him pronounce them. If you want to hear them, you can go look up Morden Solis's delightful amino acid song from the video game Mass Effect 2. No, really, there is a song, and we've mentioned it before. What's important to note, though, is that there are three types of amino acids that you need to live. First. There's non-essential amino acids. That doesn't mean you don't need them, though. Those are the amino acids your body can manufacture from simple ingredients. 
you don't need to get them from your food. Similarly, there are conditional amino acids. Those are the ones you can live without but are very helpful, especially when you're ill or stressed, which is why certain foods can be very helpful when you're sick. And then there are essential amino acids, those ones you need, but unlike non-essential amino acids, our bodies can't make. We have to get them from the food we eat. And the best source of those is meat, like turkey. And that list includes tryptophan. Now, tryptophan is an important amino acid. Your body uses it to make a particular chemical called niacin, which is one of those so-called B vitamins. And it has a lot of vital roles in your body. Particularly, it's used in the production of two other chemicals, serotonin and melatonin. And those two proteins are hormones that help regulate your brain's sleeping and waking cycles. Bingo. Tryptophan makes you sleepy, right? Well, no. See, there actually isn't that much tryptophan in turkey. Or in anything, really. It's one of the rarer amino acids. And everything that contains protein, a.k.a. meat, contains lots of different amino acids. And when you eat turkey, the tryptophan would go unnoticed in the pile of amino acids now coursing through your body and specifically into your brain. Because your brain can only absorb so many nutrients at a time. Except for insulin. Insulin is a protein that basically runs around the dungeon of your body kicking open all the doors. It basically makes each cell open up and start taking all of the nutrients out of your bloodstream. It's very important in allowing glucose, sugar, to pass from your bloodstream into your body's cells, which is why it's associated with diabetes. In fact, whenever your bloodstream gets too loaded with sugars, with carbohydrates, insulin goes into overdrive to get it all out of there. The only thing insulin really doesn't affect is tryptophan. So on Thanksgiving, you eat turkey. It's got tryptophan, yeah, but it also has a lot of other amino acids. And the tryptophan kind of gets lost in the crowd. Except, you also eat potatoes and stuffing, which are loaded with starches. Starches are carbohydrates. They turn into sugar in your bloodstream. That calls out the insulin. The insulin sweeps all of the nutrients out of your bloodstream. Except the tryptophan. And now your brain is left inundated with tryptophan, which it turns into serotonin and melatonin, which trigger your brain's natural sleep cycle. And that's why turkey makes you sleep. Because you also eat potatoes and stuffing. But we digress. Iron rations. Now, most gamers are familiar with the concept of rations. Rations are basically just portions of food that you mark off at the end of each day of travel to indicate your character had enough food and isn't starving. And these days, rations are pretty much just described on the equipment lists of various games as one pound of assorted edible stuff your character can eat to not die. And these days, with the simplification of games for kids, rations never go bad. But once upon a time, there were two types of rations available for sale in Dungeons & Dragons. They were called trail rations and iron rations. And the difference was that one was pretty perishable and the other didn't go bad for a long time. Now, before we get into this discussion about iron rations and trail rations, we should discuss the word ration. It seems pretty natural to use the word ration to mean a portion of food. After all, to ration something is simply to apportion it out. 
But have you ever wondered why the word seems so close to the word rational, which has to do with reason and judgment? Well, the concepts aren't that dissimilar, and that's because they ultimately come from the Latin word that basically meant math, radionum, meaning accounting, numbering, or reckoning. And the conjugated form, ratio, means I count out. Of course, we pronounce it ratio. It means to match one number against another. Meanwhile, the mathematical association meant that ration evolved to mean reasoning or figuring, as well as a fixed allowance. Speaking of pronunciation, in our many years at the game table, we encountered a certain number of people who pronounced their characters' portions of food ration instead of ration. And that drove us bonkers. Except now, we're forced to admit that they weren't wrong. Just very, very old-fashioned. See, that first pronunciation, ration, was actually the correct pronunciation until around World War I, when the American military decided it was pronounced ration. And you wonder why I have trouble pronouncing things. Anyway, that's also around about the time they invented iron rations, by name. Yeah. Anachronism much? As we've mentioned in the past, many members of the original Dungeons & Dragons community were avid wargamers before they invented a completely different genre of game to play about stabbing orcs in a medieval fantasy world. And when authors like Gary Gygax and J. Eric Holmes and Tom Moldvay and Frank Mincer were filling out the lists of equipment available to characters in the various early versions of D&D, they made some anachronistic choices. We've talked about a few of these in the past, like the inclusion of pole arms that came about a half a millennium after the time period on which D&D was ostensibly based. The first iron rations were issued to soldiers in 1907. An iron ration consisted of a three-ounce cooked cake made of beef bullion and wheat, packets of salt and pepper, and three one-ounce bars of chocolate. How do we know that's what Gygax and friends were inspired by? Well, because the U.S. Army actually called them iron rations. That's because the whole thing was sealed inside a metal container, though it was technically tin and not iron. The container was to protect and preserve the food for long periods because the iron ration wasn't meant for general consumption. They were for emergencies when the soldiers couldn't be supplied with food. Later versions of the iron ration were known as the reserve ration and the emergency D ration. We should also note that the whole iron ration weighed about one pound with the tin. And that one pound has become the standard weight for a single portion of a food ration in D&D. So, if you assume that the reason for the one pound is because that's some sort of actual amount of food people need to eat in a day, nope. It's because World War I military-era rations in tin cans called iron rations weighed one pound. But this begs the question, what might traveling adventurers carry with them to eat on their travels? What would trail rations actually consist of? Now, we might be tempted to look at military rations of ages past to figure that out. Well, prior to World War I and starting in the American Revolution, American soldiers enjoyed garrison rations, and it consisted of a portion of meat and a portion of bread. Sometimes it would also include vegetables. During the Revolutionary War, the American garrison ration included either a portion of salted beef, salted pork, or salted fish, and a baked flour biscuit or bit of bread. And remember that bit of bread. We'll come back to it. 
But here's the thing. Soldiers really aren't the best people to look at here because soldiers travel in large groups and they bring lots of supplies with them. For example, one account from around 1400 describes the food supplies that a group of 248 soldiers from Regensberg in modern Germany were bringing with them. They had 900 pounds of cooked meat, 900 pounds of animal lard, 1,200 pieces of cheese, 80 fish, vinegar, olive oil, pepper, saffron, ginger, 30 liters of Austrian wine, and 40 liters of beer. And they were also driving a herd of 90 oxen with them that could be converted to more food. And that wasn't atypical for Europe. Going back to the days of ancient Rome, armies marched with lots of bacon, hard biscuits known as buccalatum, and herds of cattle to turn into more food on the go. And permanent and semi-permanent Roman military encampments and fortifications also maintained herds of cattle and goats and even had fields of grain. The grain thing was actually a big issue for the Romans. It's estimated that each soldier in the Roman army consumed about 700 pounds of grain a year in the form of biscuits and unleavened bread. So maybe we should talk about the bread thing now. Because meat and bread have been pretty much the staples of the military diet since time immemorial. Hardtack is a cliché for a reason, after all. That's the dried cracker-like biscuit made of flour, water, and salt that's called hardtack because tack was British sailor slang for food and because it was pretty hard on the teeth. That's why hardtack breads have also been nicknamed molar breakers and tooth dullers by various soldiers. But almost every army relied on some form of bread or biscuit made of milled grain. We mentioned the Roman buccalatum. The Egyptians had dora, King Richard's crusaders had muslin biscuits, and so on. And these things were generally baked as hard as possible, because the lack of internal moisture prevented them from growing mold and going bad. But that was okay, because they would soften over time with exposure to moisture because they could be dipped into beer and other liquids. Many of these hardtack breads, stored dryly and kept intact, could last for years without spoiling. Now, we'd be remiss if we talked any longer about trail rations and cakes and biscuits without mentioning Lembus. And we don't want to lose our nerd cards. So, Lembus. In J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo Baggins and his traveling fellowship are supplied with trail rations by the elves of Lothlorien. And the elves hand them little bits of cake called Limbus. Basically, it's a little cake-like biscuit that is so nourishing that a little nibble on one corner can sustain a person for days. Oh, and evil creatures like the terrible Gollum cannot abide Limbus or draw any nourishment from it. The detail the movies hinted at but glossed over and neglected to explain. While Limbus just seems like a little magical detail invented by Tolkien to simplify things because he didn't like tracking rations any more than modern D&D game masters do, Tolkien's status as a historian, a master linguist, and a staunch Roman Catholic suggests that Limbus was almost as loaded with references and symbolism as it was with magical elven nutrients. First, Tolkien was probably referencing the long history of terrible, hard, unleavened bread rations for soldiers, but also pointing out how great the elves were by suggesting that even their hardtack is a work of art. Second, Tolkien was likely referencing Lamas in the name Limbus. Lamas, with one L and two M's, is an old English name for an old late summer holiday. 
The name literally translates to loaf mass or bread mass. But the holiday predates the name, and many cultures celebrated it. In Ireland, for example, it was a festival to honor the god Loaf. In Rome, they celebrated the god Adonis. The Sumerians honored Tammuz and Ishtar. But the holiday wasn't about gods at all. It was about the beginning of the grain harvest. Sometime in early August, the first grain sheaves would be cut, and farmers would make the first loaves of bread. Those loaves would be blessed by priests, a tradition that continued even in Christian communities. The first loaf of bread might be broken into pieces in some places, and the pieces placed at the corners of the barn in which the rest of the grain would eventually be stored. So Lamas was a celebration of bread as a staple of the diet, grain as the source of that staple, and the beginning of the harvest season. Meanwhile, the magical properties of Lamas to sustain travelers for long periods, at least chosen travelers of good alignment, is probably a reference to another mystical bread that sustained travelers in the distant past. We're talking here of the angel's food, the bread of heaven, manna. The Old Testament of the Bible tells the history of the chosen people of the Abrahamic religions, the Israelites, and how they came to live in Israel. It begins with the founding of the tribe of Israel and their enslavement in the kingdom of Egypt. Well, it begins with the creation of the universe and all of humanity, then it moves on to the Israelites. In the book of Exodus, the prophet Moses is visited by God and told to lead his people to freedom. After some argument with the Pharaoh of Egypt that ends with a blood-filled river choked with dead frogs and locusts and a lot of dead babies, Moses finally leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the desert in search of their promised land. Unfortunately, the desert was not a particularly hospitable place, what with being a desert and all. For more on surviving the desert, check out our episode entitled Fata Morgana. The Israelites weren't having a great time of it. They were getting pretty hungry and angry, and we will not demean any of the major faiths in the world, nor ourselves, by referring to their state as angry. Things were getting bad, but God told Moses to keep his spirits up. God would provide. And the next day, the ground was covered with something called a manna, a name which means in Hebrew, what the heck is this stuff anyway? Seriously, we're not making that up. According to the Bible, the stuff was as white as coriander seed and a bit like a honeyed wafer. Obviously, the people were pretty relieved about the sudden appearance of tasty snack cakes all over the desert. But Moses was very careful not to take God's gift for granted. He cautioned the people to gather only a certain portion for each of the six days it appeared. Some people, of course, gathered more. And the excess turned wormy and spoiled immediately. The stuff appeared for six days straight. On the final day, Friday, Moses told everyone to gather a double portion because of the prohibition against working on the seventh day, the Sabbath. The extra portion gathered for the Sabbath didn't spoil. After six days straight, the manna stopped appearing. But the Israelites' stash lasted for 40 years, miraculously. Beyond that, God told Moses, to save some manna so his people would always be reminded that God would provide for them in their need. And Moses followed those directions in a couple of ways. First, he gathered some manna in a jar and put it in the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Second, bread wafers in imitation of manna became a part of various religious rites, including the traditional Passover observance. So, how did manna pass from Hebrew to Roman Catholic? 
Well, many years later, Jesus Christ first performed a similar miracle when a great crowd gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to meet him. The folks who had followed Jesus on a pilgrimage to the remote area didn't have any food, and Jesus and his disciples had only five loaves of bread between them. Well, Jesus started breaking off bits of bread for each person, and somehow there was enough to feed 5,000 people. Later, on the eve of his betrayal and crucifixion, at a Passover observance, Jesus warned his disciples that the end was near. But he took up a bit of the Passover bread and told his disciples that he was the spiritual equivalent of the bread from heaven. Anyone who remembered him while he ate bread and drank wine would be saved and live after death in the kingdom of God. And thus was born the Christian tradition of the Eucharist and the Holy Communion. You know, the cracker and wine thing. And it's fairly likely Tolkien was referencing the manna and Eucharist thing in his miraculous lembus that could sustain you for weeks or months, but only if you weren't evil. Now, getting back to the question of what is really an adventuring trail rations. Well, rations have changed a lot through the years. But there's really only two components that are required. Preserved salted meat for protein and grains and bread for starches. Dried fruit, cheese, and vegetables are nice additions. But salted beef, salted pork, salted fish, and a hard piece of stale bread make up the basic definition. Protein and carbohydrates. The building blocks of life. And in the right combinations, the building blocks of a good post-feast nap. <sighs> Which we're long overdue for. So if you'll excuse us. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>